So if you've got your Bibles, uh, it can be this one or this one or your cellular mobile, I do want to invite you to go to the Gospel of John. Uh, as Jeff said, we are in John 3 this morning. Uh, last weekend, we talked a little bit about the story of Nicodemus and that famous John 3.16 uh, passage. Uh, today, we're going to move on uh, to a story, a familiar story, about John the Baptist, and we are going to talk about humility. Uh, which is kind of an interesting topic to talk about, right? Um, so I was talking to someone this past week, and they said, hey, what are you preaching on this week? And I said, I've got this sermon written on humility, and I think it's going to be really good. <laughs> you hear the dilemma? You know, we almost, it's, it's just, it's hard, right, to even just acknowledge, you know, what's something that we're excited about or, you know, something that maybe we have prepared. And uh, maybe you can relate to this and this, this wrestling uh, with humility. Uh, we all wrestle with humility. How many of you uh, raise your hand if you do not wrestle with humility? It's a trick question, right? Because if you raise your hand, uh, you are not a humble person, right? In fact, C.S. Lewis said it this way, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud, and a biggish step too, at least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you're not conceited, it means you're very conceited indeed. Isn't that great? Can't go wrong with C.S. Lewis. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for a time together this morning, this gathering of your people. And God, the gathering of those who are joining us online this morning. We pray, God, uh, that you would give us open hearts, open minds, and open lives, as Jeff said this morning, that in all that we do, might truly be all about you as we strip away all the things that we bring into worship this morning. Help us to focus on you and you alone. God, as we open your word, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable. For you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Humility. We might be one of the least humble generations that has ever walked on the planet, right? I mean, after all, we are the generation that invented the selfie. Hey, look at me. Look who I'm with. Look what I'm doing. Look at me. Every year, every day, 90 million selfies are taken. I mean, that's who we are. This is our generation. We are obsessed with ourselves. In fact, June 21st coming up is National Selfie Day. So make your plans and preparations to jump out of an airplane or do whatever it takes to take a selfie and draw attention to yourself. And what we're learning more and more is that selfies are not good for us. Not just mentally, but physically. There is actually now a condition called death by selfie. This is a real thing. And what it is, of course, is people going to all sorts of extraordinary lengths 
and actually dying because they're taking selfies. So according to the Journal of Family Medicine and Primary Care, between 2011 and 2017, 259 people died in 137 related accidents compared to just 50 people killed by sharks over that same period of time. In other words, you are five times more likely to die by a selfie than a shark attack. Even people who are like surfers and go to the beach, they're more likely to die by a selfie. And people die by selfies in all sorts of different ways. Probably the most uh, famous or popular way is people fall, right? They go somewhere, they do something dangerous, and they fall, and not hard to understand. Or people see animals. There was a guy uh, in Kenya, a guy from Italy in Kenya, and he saw this herd of elephants. He's like, that is awesome. I'm going to get a selfie. Until they trampled him to death. People also die uh, oftentimes in car accidents or vehicle accidents. How about that one? You see the bus coming up behind them? Or maybe not surprising, at railroad crossings. People stand on the railroad track, the train is bearing down them, and they're out there taking a selfie. Maybe you've heard of Gigi Wu. She's from Taiwan. She is known as the bikini backpacker. And she travels all over the place in a bikini and takes selfies. She died a few years ago of hypothermia. Lots of drownings, people taking selfies, electrocutions, or people get a, a weapon, a gun, and they want to, you know, they want to pose with that gun, and they end up shooting themselves. I mean, here's one, not too bright, huh? I mean, normally, I'm not really in favor of Darwin, but every now and then, I'll make some exceptions, Right? I mean, we live in a selfie world, but this is really the human condition. I think it's just the technology that's magnifying who we are as human beings. Look at me, drawing attention to ourselves. And of course, what's at the root of all this is pride. And so pride is, this, is a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements, the achievements of those with whom one is associated, or from qualities or possessions uh, that are widely admired. We all struggle with this. And oftentimes it's the people who struggle with this the most that are least open to talking about what pride is and why it's a problem. And I like this image because I think in so many ways this kind of describes what the condition of is what pride is all about. It's, it's there's me, but I really think much bigger of myself. And pride has been around from the very beginning. Remember, it was pride that kicked Lucifer out of heaven. It was pride that expelled Adam and Eve from the garden. It was pride that took King Saul out of the kingdom. Over and over, we see throughout the Bible that pride becomes a problem. Pride is a cancer to our souls. It eats at us and it destroys us. And this is the context for the story in John 3 this morning. 
After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John, was, uh, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because there was plenty of water and the people were coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in the prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. So I'm going to pause there for just a moment because we talked a little bit about baptism last weekend. In the Old Testament, baptism was a way for folks to go through a process of purification. In fact, the priest would go into a, 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 a basin, it was called a mikvah, to wash themselves before they went into the temple as a way of acknowledging their sin and their dirtiness, and they need to be clean before coming into the presence of God. And people who were not God followers, they were baptized, they were washed clean when they converted to become followers of God, when they became Jews. So this is a familiar process, but what John the Baptist is doing in this day He's taking up another notch. He's taking an Old Testament concept and he says, okay, now we're also going to baptize Jewish people. And so the people are flocking down to the Jordan River to be washed for their sins. And John closely ties this idea of baptism with repentance. And then Jesus comes along and he does something even greater. He baptizes and says, you don't need to just be washed on the outside, but you need your insides cleaned as well. And that's a little bit what we talked about last weekend with Nicodemus and this encounter with Jesus. So there's this dispute, an argument between uh, John the Baptist uh, folks and somebody else who's come along. There's a squabble, if you will. You know, up until this point in time, John was really kind of the guy. John the Baptist was kind of the guy. He was a very eccentric person, and he was drawing a lot of attention to himself. He spent most of his life out in the wilderness, but all of a sudden when he walks on stage, he became kind of a flash in the pan. He became kind of an instant sensation and kind of one of these instant heroes. I mean, he had some really crazy clothes made out of camel products, and he had wild hair. And he ate bugs. He was drawing attention from a lot of people because it's not just what he looked like, but it was his message. He was the original shock jock. He was the original one who called people out. And he had such a compelling message that people were flocking to him all over the place. Who is this guy? There's something different about him. You remember... John is the one who even baptized Jesus. Jesus showed up at the Jordan River. So one day, as this is going along, all of a sudden, John the Baptist people come to him and they're like, hey, this guy, this guy that you elevated, he's taken our market share. They're no longer coming to us anymore. They're all going to him. You hear this dilemma, this, this, this kind of brewing, this problem that's going on. It's a squabble about baptism. Isn't it interesting? Here we are 2,000 years later, and we are still squabbling about baptism. 
I mean, have you ever been a part of these conversations before? about the methods and the methodology, because there are some pastors, there are some churches, you probably know some people that will tell you that you're doing it wrong. And they're going to tell you exactly how to do it, and they're going to have all sorts of biblical references. But here's the deal. Here at Faith Lutheran Church, we don't get hung up on the particulars, the amount of water, where it's done, whether an adult is baptized, whether a child, even an infant is baptized. We just believe baptism is really important. We don't get hung up and argue with one another or, frankly, with others. I hope you don't argue with others, but we've got the corner on it. We're doing it the right way here. So here's the deal. We believe it's important. We believe it's a gift from God. And we want to celebrate and live into it. And we believe it's a mystery. And we actually have several options here for baptism. Just out down the the road here, there's a pond on this property. If you want to wait for the ice to break, we can do that. We can baptize you in the goose pond down there. Sugar Creek is running right back here. We can do it in the creek. We have a swimming pool over here. If you'd like to be baptized, we can bring the font in. We can do that. And if you just, I know some people are like, oh, it's got to be done where there's a lot of water. There's got to be a lot of drama. If that's you, I would be willing to go to Cancun with you. (laughs) And we can have you baptized in the ocean. We don't fuss about how much water. We don't fuss in the particularities We just think it's important because Jesus says it's important. But on this day, there's lots of fussing going on. We all can fall into this problem of the comparison trap. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him. Everyone's going to him. You hear the drama there? Nobody's coming to us. Everybody's going to him. And what they're really trying to do is set John up for this argument that they're in the midst of. And maybe you've fallen into this argument in your own life. This issue of comparing yourself to others or comparing others with you. It's a comparison trap, right? You look at other people's lives and you're like, why did he get the promotion? I am so much more qualified for that position. I'm so much more experienced. I'm so much more educated. I'm so much uh, smarter. I'm so much more humble. Why did they get the promotion? Or you, you, you talk to other people and they tell you about their kids and, and you're like, man, why are their kids so smart? Why are their kids so successful? Why are their kids doing all the things that they're doing? Why are their grandkids so beautiful? Why is their dog even better looking than my dog and better well-behaved, right? I mean, it's this comparison trap and, and it's always a lose-lose thing. When we compare ourselves to other people and other people's lives, we know stuff about ourselves. 
And there's lots of things we don't know about them. We filter out their stuff and we know all of our garbage. So it's an unfair comparison. I mean, their their vacation really wasn't that great. They're only going to put the pictures on Instagram that were super awesome, right? It's filtered. What really happened on their vacation is the couple got into an argument, your husband made a mess, and you yelled at the kids. You just didn't post all that stuff on Instagram. But this is what we do. Stuff's going on in our lives, and we compare ourselves on these little devices, right? Everybody get out your phone. Everybody got a phone with you this morning? You all have a phone with you this morning. Look at your phone this morning. And I want you all to repeat after me. You are a liar. (laughs) Say it again. You are a liar. You don't believe it. Put your phones away. That's what these are. They, They just lie to us all day long. And they invite us to compare our lives to others. You probably know this story about uh, this young couple. They were engaged. They were in love. And they said, well, let's document it. And so they wrote this document, uh, documentation, this, this uh, posted on social media, My Happy Van Life. And they, tra- they traveled across the United States in front of all sorts of wonderful things, just really exciting things. And, and people went to this stuff, and they would look at this stuff, and they're like, wow, they've got the greatest relationship ever. Until we learn that they didn't, right? I mean, this is what happens with comparison. We think everybody else has got a great life, or just maybe even a, ha- a handful of people. A comparison actually kills. Every mental health expert will tell you this is what social media does to our lives. It makes us anxious. It makes us depressed. And it causes us to feel horrible about ourselves. And we're stressed and filled with anxiety and depression. This is the world in which we live. And we all have this in our pocket. Back in the day, you used to have to carry around pictures no longer. It's all with you. I think the other thing, the problem with uh, the comparison trap is it's an affront to God. When we compare ourselves to others and their highlight reel, what we're saying to God is, hey, God, you got it wrong. You gave her too much. You didn't give me enough. And at least a condemnation Or if you're posting your selfies and and all your stuff that's going on in your life, it's it's a way for us to uh, be prideful. Hey, look at me. Look at all my stuff. It's a trap. And that's what comparison does. That's what comparison is. So here's John's response as he's, they're trying to bait him uh, into the comparison trap. John versus uh, Jesus. To this, John replied, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. John's got this perspective. There's really two ways to look at this. I can look at everything I have as a gift from God, or I can look at everything that uh, I have, something I've earned, something I deserved. 
We all live in this continuum. Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust God? Are you going to trust yourself? And when we trust God, it invites us to live into this idea of what it means to be content. Because as long as we're playing the, the comparison game, we are not content. The Apostle Paul, when he was in jail, in jail, wrote this. I have learned the secret of being content in everything. See, for the Apostle Paul, he understood the contentment does not depend on our external circumstances. He says, I have learned the secret. You want to know the secret? You want to know the secret of what it means to be content in your life? To go through life day in and day out, moment in and moment out, and just have this overwhelming sense of it is well with my soul. It's not well with all that's going on, but it is well within my soul. And I think we can probably all think of examples of people who have more stuff than you, who have more money than you, who have more, you know, toys and, and things, success, but they don't have peace in their lives. They don't have contentment in their lives because they don't have Jesus in their lives. This is what Paul is talking about. This is what John is talking about. The secret to contentment is experience and trusting in God. A person can only receive what is given them from heaven. Now, I've discovered, um, I've wrestled with this. I think we all wrestle with this. And when I discovered a couple of years ago, one of the great anecdotes or uh, antidotes or uh, ways that we can kind of combat this idea of looking at others and falling into the comparison trap is just, frankly, getting out a piece of paper, just a simple piece of paper, and writing down on the top of the paper things I'm grateful for. Things I'm grateful for. And I would, I would challenge you to do this this afternoon. It probably isn't going to take you that long. And I would encourage you to write down the number of things for every time that you've traveled around the sun. So I'm 53, so I would get out a piece of paper and I would just write down a list of 50 th- 53 things that I'm thankful for. And I want to encourage you, think about things, big things that you're thankful for. I am thankful for my faith in Jesus Christ and that God has rescued me. I'm thankful you for my salvation. So I mean big things. But you can also be thankful for little things like I'm thankful when I'm driving on Veterans Parkway, driving along, and the fresh donut sign is on at Krispy Kreme. Right? That, that's okay. You, you can be thankful for that. Big things, little things. You can even like list the number of kids you've got. Thankful for this one and this one. That might be a little harder, Right? But grandkids, oh man, that's an easy one, right? You're thankful for your grandkids. It depends on the day how thankful for you are for your kids. But here's the deal. On a day when you are falling, tipping into that comparison trap, get out your list. Keep it handy. And look at it. And I guarantee you, all that envy, all that desire of what others have, it will just melt away. Did you know that as an American, we are 4% of the world's population? 
Meaning 96% of the world does not get to enjoy the privileges and the responsibilities that we get. I mean, can we just be grateful to be Americans and to live in this country and to enjoy the freedoms we have? I mean, I know we gripe and moan about all the freedoms we don't have, but travel outside this country a little bit, and we're blessed. We've got a lot of freedom. Isn't it great to be an American, to be an American citizen, to have the things that we have? 96% of the world does not enjoy what we've got. And if you make more than $35,000 a year, you don't have to raise your hand. If you make more than $35,000 a year, you are part of the 1% club. You are part of the wealthiest 1% of people that live on the planet. 99% of the people in the world have less than $35,000 a year in annual income. Can we be grateful? I know there's a lot to moan and gripe about. I do it myself. But we've been blessed. We've got a lot. And I want to encourage you to write down the things that you are grateful for. I think this is what John is focused on, John the Baptist. Continuing on, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the groom. The friend who attends the groom, uh, the, the groom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the groom's voice. And then John the Baptist says, the joy is mine, and now it's complete. Notice that John the Baptist doesn't say, the happiness is mine. He says, the joy is mine. Because John the Baptist understands that there is a distinction, there is a difference between joy and happiness. Right? And so just I'll give you a couple examples here this morning. How many of you were happy about the weather this morning? Two hands, three hands, okay. How about earlier this week when it was uh, in the 40s and sunny? How, then were you, were you happy about the weather? Okay. Those of you who were tuning in online, Florida, Arizona, disgusting places like that, all of your hands are up, Right? See, our happiness goes up and down depending on the weather. Or sometimes they'll ask you about your job. Say, how was your, how was, how was your day? How was your job today? It's going to depend, right? You're happy about your job or you're not so happy about your job. Or even about your families, right? You're happy with your family. You're not happy with your family. See, the thing about happiness, happiness is an emotion. Happiness is a feeling. Happiness comes and goes. It's fleeting, not joy. Joy is completely different. Joy is what is inside regardless of the external circumstances. Big distinction between happiness and joy. I'm for happiness. I'm, I'm happy when you're happy. I just don't think happiness is the goal. Joy is what we ought to be about. Sometimes I'm having conversations with some of you um, about your kids. And, and you're moaning and groaning usually about your kids. I moan and groan about my kids as well. And then the conversation, you know, kind of goes on for a while, and, and you, you talk, and I talk, and, and we have this great conversation. And, and sometimes what I'll hear uh, some of you say is, I just want my kids to be happy. It's in that moment that I want to reach out and strangle you. 
Your kids will never be happy. That's elusive. I think what you mean is you want your kids to experience joy. You want them to have that that contentment, that inner peace. That's what you want. So I want to encourage you to pay attention to your language and how you use these words, joy and happiness. A friend of mine says it this way. He says, you know what? What I want for my kids is I want them to know Jesus. Because when they know Jesus, they have everything that they need. Is that about right, John? Did I get that quote right? That's your quote. I just want my kids to know Jesus because when they know Jesus, they have everything they need. I think that ought to be our goal in life is to raise our kids that they know Jesus in such a way that they experience that joy, that peace, that contentment. John continues on. He must become greater, I must become less. Some of your Bibles say, he must increase, I must decrease, right? You've probably heard that before. And I think we hear this, uh, John the Baptist saying this, he must become greater, I must become less. We're like, I think that's great. I think we can all agree that Jesus must become greater, right? We all want to lift up the name of Jesus. We just want him to uh, bring us along. If we're honest, I mean, we just, we want to increase, we want to lift up Jesus, we just want to ride his coattails. But that's not what John the Baptist says. He must increase and I must decrease. Some of you might know the name William Carey. William Carey is is a guy uh, known as the father of the modern mission movement. And he lived in a day and time, he was English, he lived in a day and time where people did not travel around the world to share Jesus with others. And one day, William Carey was gathered with his church people. He said, I have a call to go to India and share the good news of Jesus Christ with the people in India. And then one of the elders from the church said, sit down, young man. If God wants those heathens to know about Jesus, he will do it with or without you. That was the context in the world in which William Carey lived. Not a big motivational speech there by the church elder. Stay home. God will take care of it. But William Carey felt called to go to India, to the subcontinent of India. And when he got there, it was hard. The ministry was hard. The mission was hard. The people were closed to Jesus. But over time, a few people started to believe and put their trust and their faith in Jesus. And he lived there for many, many years. And many people surrendered their lives through the work of William Carey. In fact, he died in India. And as he was on his deathbed, people were surrounding him. And he knew he was going to die soon. And he looked at those people in the room And he said, after I'm gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior. And here we are, several hundred years later. That is still his desire, his wish, that we would not talk about William Carey, but we would talk about the Savior of William Carey. That ought to be our our mantra. That ought to be our statement as well. 
We're not on this earth to build a life for ourselves. We're not on this earth to build a name for ourselves. That's what John the Baptist is saying. That's what William Carey said. We're on this earth to point to Jesus, the one who has rescued us. And I think one of the issues of this whole idea of pride and humility is that we don't have a great definition of what it means to be humble. It's hard, right? I mean, what does it actually mean to be humble? A dictionary definition is simply this. Humble is not proud or arrogant, modest. I think we can kind of go, yeah, that sounds pretty good, right? I can agree with that. But then you get to number two, having a feeling of insignificance, inferiority, subservience. So we're like, ooh, I don't like that. I'm not sure if I agree with that. Are we supposed to feel insignificant, inferior? Or number three, low in rank, importance, status, quality, feeling lowly. I mean, we hear that dictionary definition where we're like, I don't like that. I don't want to do that. I mean, who wants to walk around and just, you know, live that way, feeling insignificant? And I've got this image here. It's kind of the opposite of the one before with pride. There we are looking, and it was just, this is how we view ourselves, our shadow, as small and insignificant. I don't think that's a terribly helpful definition of what it means to be humble. I like Rick Warren's uh, definition of humility. He says it this way, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Isn't that good? I like that. Now, this, this quote has also been attributed to C.S. Lewis, uh, Ken Blanchard. I'm not sure who actually said it. I did a C.S. Lewis quote earlier in the message, and I didn't want to do two C.S. Lewis quotes in the message, and I kind of like Rick Warren. I think he's got some good stuff to say. So I'm going to attribute this to Rick Warren. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And I think there's certainly lots of biblical evidence, certainly a lot of the ways in which Jesus lived his life, the ways in which he called and invited us as his followers to not think about ourselves all the time, but to think about other people. I think that's a pretty good definition. But I will also say, I think it's also kind of incomplete. And I think the dilemma or the problem with that particular definition of of, of Rick Warren is that we live with ourselves, right? Right? I mean, this is defining humility with a negative. Don't think about yourself. And so a couple of years ago, I heard this quote. Humility is thinking of yourself in light of who Christ is. And I went looking on the internet. I have no idea who said that. Does anybody know who said that? I heard it a couple of years ago. I think it's a great quote. Humility is thinking of yourself, because that's what we do, right, in light of who Christ is. So it's comparing ourselves, comparing to the person of Jesus Christ. Not to all the other people on our social media news feeds, to the person of Jesus Christ. I think that's a much healthier way for us to understand 
who we are and how God has called us and our posture in this world. And so then uh, John, the writer of the Gospel of John, uh, explains what this means. The one who comes from above is above all. Of course, that's Jesus. The one who is from earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. That's you and me. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God and gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything into His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. And so I think what what, what John is saying here is that Jesus Christ is from above. And being from above and being one with God, He is holy. He is perfect. He is from all time. God speaks through the person of Jesus Christ. You and I are from the earth. We're finite. We speak for the earth. We're sinful. We're broken. And so as we compare ourselves to the person of Jesus Christ, there is this big gap. He is God, and I am not. And I think when we understand that distinction between who Jesus is and who we are, it's a good beginning place. Because sometimes I hear people, even people in the church, talk about how all people are basically good. Have you ever heard that? People are just basically good. We're just good, right? We're we're made in the image of God. True statement, we are made in the image of God. But make no mistake about it, we are not good. We are sinful. We are broken. Our desire is for evil. We don't even want to be good. That's who we are. This is our condition. But Jesus is perfect. He's from above. And so somehow, there's got to be a way to connect the two, right? To be in relationship with Jesus, to be in relationship with God. And this, of course, is where the cross comes in. Me, sinful and evil, and Jesus, perfect and holy, How can we be in relationship together? This is why Jesus had to go to the cross. To suffer and sacrifice and atone for, to make right this relationship. See, we hear about this word, uh, God's wrath remains on them. It's this idea of judgment. And we believe, as Jesus followers, that God is a just judge, right? We believe that God is just, that God is a good judge. He's really good. So we think about a really good judge. That's God. He's a really good judge. He's a perfect judge. And so imagine this. Imagine someone does something to your child, something really horrible to your child. The police track down the perpetrator who did that horrible thing to your child. They arrest that person. They bring him before the judge, and the judge says, everybody makes mistakes, no problem. Would any of us think that that is a good judge or a just judge? 
No, that's an unjust judge. That's who God is. He is a just judge. He says a crime has been committed. Something has happened is wrong. It needs to be fixed. That's who God is. Oftentimes we think, oh, God is judgmental. Yes, he is judgmental because he is a just judge. Because when things happen that go wrong, God has to judge. See, it gets back to this idea of, oh, I'm really not that bad of a sinner. Yes, you are. And so am I. We deserve what we get. And according to John, we deserve the wrath of God on our lives. But that just judge, the convict or the person standing before them, they've been declared guilty. They say, I'm going to provide a way out. I'm going to give you mercy. I'm going to delay the judgment on your life. I'm going to give you a down payment. His name is Jesus. Even though you committed the crime, Jesus is going to pay for it. And this is how this works. We deserve death. We deserve judgment. We deserve wrath. And in that moment, Jesus says for, steps forward and says, I'll take it. I'll take the punishment so that you and God can be in relationship with one another. John says again, like he did last week, what we read about with Nicodemus, that there are really two options. We can live our lives unto ourselves, and we'll live in God's wrath. We just live the way that we live. We just do what we do. We can even try and do nice things. We can even do good things. But over and over, Jesus tells us it's not good enough. The only thing that can bridge the gap, the only thing that can fulfill the sin that has been, com been committed is Jesus Christ on the cross. He's the only thing. So we have two options. Live unto ourselves or live in the grace and the mercy of God. That he pays the bill. He takes on the judgment, the wrath of God. And I think that's good news for us. Because we have a choice. God gives us a choice to receive this. But I think the hardest part about this choice comes back to humility. It comes back to pride. So we want to do it ourselves. We don't want to acknowledge that we are sinful. We don't want to acknowledge that we are broken. We don't want to acknowledge we can't do it ourselves. This past week, I had lunch with a, a, a friend here at church. And when the, uh, the server brought out our check, we did maybe what you sometimes do when the server brings out the check. As we wrangled and haggled over who was going to pay the bill. Anybody ever done that? I got to tell you, I'm a little bit uncomfortable when somebody else pays the, when you pay the check for me, when we go out for lunch or coffee or whatever, because I want to pay the check. I want to pay the bill. I want to be the guy who's, you know, generous, the one who's, who's able, who's capable to do, pay that bill. It's not a, it wasn't a big check, but I was uncomfortable. I didn't like it. But I got to tell you, every time I go out to lunch with my family, my mom and my dad are there, I feel really good about my dad paying the check. 
right? I mean, there's just an expect. I don't even reach for my wallet when my dad is at the table. I expect him to pay the bill. That's what I want for you folks, too, as well. I want you to just receive that gift from your heavenly Father. He loves you that much. He wants to pay for it. He wants to pay for your sin. He wants to pay for your debt. He wants to pay for your broken, brokenness. And we have got to let go of our pride and just become humble and say, all right, Dad, all right, Father, you can pay for it. And when we do, in that moment, we get that peace because God has given us something free and it's filled with grace. That's good news, amen? Yeah, I think that's what John is talking about. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are a God who um, just invites us um, to keep the wallet in our back pocket uh, when it comes to uh, being in relationship with you. To not feel like we have to pay out, that we have to put out, that we have to do things, but truly we can just receive that gift from you. And God, that is some of the hardest work that any of us do in our lives is to just receive and accept that as a gift from you. Because there is something in us, God, that wants to do it ourselves. God, we are sinful, broken people. We are a selfie people. We are all about drawing attention to ourselves and not living in a way that is humble and inviting you to increase as we decrease. And so, Lord, I pray uh, that John the Baptist's words, that John the Apostle's words, uh, that Jesus' words would penetrate deeply into our hearts. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.